You're listening to Lame Radio, the hottest show this side of Diesel. Greetings and welcome to episode 18 of Lave Radio, the show that talks about the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, known as Elite Dangerous. I'm Fozza Forrester, your host for these shenanigans, and joining me in the sidewind of this episode, after taking some flack last episode for his mathematical prowess, Alan has come back bigger and stronger than ever. And for this episode only, he should be known as Mr. Fantastic. Thanks. <laughs> And taking time out of his busy, busy schedule, a schedule that includes running over prostitutes, committing acts of random violence, aviation theft, assassinations, jewellery heists, and finally, many counts of Grand Theft Auto, Mr. Red himself, Jonathan Stabler. Hello. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Only my mother calls me Jonathan. <laughs> Why did you start calling me Jonathan all of a sudden? I, I, I wrote it down. For some reason, John looked wrong on the screen tonight, so I just thought I'd go with your, Chris, uh, your, your, your Sunday name and go with Jonathan. Even though my Skype name says John Stabler. My forum name is John Stabler. <laughs> I don't know what I did to offend you, Foz. <laughs> and finally, the man who we thought we wouldn't hear from in a while, he is, we hope, the answer to the question, who's the daddy, Mr. Christopher Jarvis. <laughs> Hello. Hello, sir. Uh, first of all, for everybody on the podcast, mate, congratulations. Thank you very much. How goes it with that leading? <laughs> I was going to be mean there and just say fucking brutal. No, um... <laughs> um no great actually yeah really good really nice um it's uh yeah it's it's just a really nice thing it's very bizarre i was saying the other day that it's odd to want to spend so much time with someone that offers so little interaction and cries for such little provocation um (laughs) i mean i have i have chucked women before on the basis of that kind of behaviour. But, you know, no, she's great, and it's um, it's good, it's nice. How much did she weigh when she was born, mate? Seven pounds, five ounces. Ouch. Uh, John, what have you been up to this week? Do you want my really dramatic version, or do you just want the just get out of the way so we can talk about the game? Dramatic version. I always want your really dramatic performance, mate. Okay, the, possibly the scariest thing ever to happen to me in at least five years happened this week um i was in the garden and i was just clearing stuff out the way and getting the uh, moving the bin and what i didn't realize is a spider had cast its web from the house to the brick wall and and i'm i'm not arachnophobic but i don't like them um and i turned around and all of a sudden i hit it and i had a spider so big that its front legs were on my glasses and the back legs were on my cheek oh. and yeah, I didn't, and I had a little freak out in the garden. Luckily, <laughs> it was in the middle of the day, no one was home, all the neighbours worked, so... Uh... <laughs> Did you do what a friend of mine used to call the spider dance? <laughs> yeah, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and for those listeners out there who are good on Photoshop, if you would perhaps like to do that image for all of us to see that... <laughs> no, 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 forget Photoshop. I want a video dramatic reconstruction. Sounds great. <laughs> Crime Watch style. But seriously, what I what have I been doing um, apart from freaking out was um, we've now gone three weeks with three podcasts. Um, it's almost like back at the start where we had loads of stuff to talk about every week. So I've been doing a lot of editing, and today I finished editing uh, a new writer's interview. Ooh! 
Yes, with T. James, which will probably be out before this podcast. But <laughs> but people check it out because I, I really enjoyed speaking to him. He's a very cool guy. He had a lot to talk about and it's a very interesting book. And obviously the other thing that you've been up to uh, this week, as I alluded to in your uh, intro, is the fact that you have bought Grand Theft Auto 5. Bought is, you know, the main feature. I haven't played a lot of it i managed a bit of a catch-up the other night but i just found you know i can't believe you you know you were trying to make out i go with prostitutes you're the one who spends his life in hotels mate <laughs> i spend one day a week in a hotel with no I, prostitutes just in case well, my wife i tell you what I, I i could only dream of such freedom my friend <laughs> <laughs> but what are you think here? Obviously, um, Grand Theft Auto—it's a big open-world sandbox. Um, I wouldn't—I uh, wouldn't compare it to Elite in any way, shape, or form. But uh, how are you finding it? How are you finding the sandbox world of it? Well, it is kind of like Elite. It's like Elite, right? But without spaceships. It's it's like Elite, but with none of the game content in any way, shape, or form, and with a completely different set of game content added in the fact that it's kind of like Elite in that it's a computer game. Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, the um, the stats for... I don't know, not, you, you, know, you don't like stats, Alan, but the stats for Grand Theft Auto uh, are out. And uh, if Elite Dangerous could be you know, anywhere near as successful as this game has turned out to be, then I think we're all going to be exceptionally happy. It's the it sold. What was it? I think it sold uh, over eight hundred million dollars in the first twenty four hours, and then within three days, it broken the Call of Duty record of going over a billion dollars, which took Call of Duty, I think, two weeks. And Grand Theft Auto well, did in three days. Yeah, Why are you like, making me comparison? Can I just be one. clear though? Because I, I love Elite, and I'm really excited about Elite Dangerous coming. But I think we need to be a little bit realistic about the fact <laughs> that the release of Elite Dangerous is not going to be as big as the last Call of Duty and GTA 5. I'm prepared to predict that right now. Frontier yeah. didn't have um, a budget of $137 million to actually spend on on the game. So um, if it turns out even, you know, three quarters as good, <laughs> I would be very happy. <laughs> Great stuff. And obviously, I refer to you as Mr. Fantastic. Alan, do you want to shed some light on your interest and exciting news this week? The the big news that you're alluding to is that um, I've been in discussions with uh, the publisher of, or the prospective publisher of Drew Wager and uh, John Harper's books, the irredeemable or irrepressible Dan Grubb of Fantastic Books. And Fantastic Books are very interested in taking my book. Yay! So uh, I have... As we speak today, I have a contract sat in my email box waiting for me to peruse and waiting for me to go over and make some decisions about what I'm going to do. That's fantastic news, Alan. So, so what exactly does that entail and yeah, how does that make you feel? Well, it's, it's interesting, really. I'm, as some people know, and Chris will probably attest to, I'm a bit of a perfectionist and I'm not the greatest person at taking compliments on anything. So it is the, the, the process that we went through the other night. And literally, I, you know, I mean, we're recording today on Wednesday and the submission went yesterday. Um, I sent the submission in at six o'clock on uh, Tuesday night and I got the response at 6.30 on Tuesday night to say that they wanted me. They'd read my work in 30 minutes and had decided straight on the spot to offer me a contract. That's quite humbling in and, in and of itself. And obviously I've got, you know, the, the sort of 
snippeted editor's comments. And Dan doesn't make the decisions. Dan is the, the head of the company. He's got an expert who is the submissions editor, and the submissions editor makes the decisions. To have someone who who obviously has you know a lot of professional experience in uh, in this genre and in this area take a look at my work and go, yeah, take him straight away is really really humbling and um, and quite a big thing. Yes, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, I've got. Uh, significant experience in terms of you know I've produced books before I've had publishing offers before and they've been at particular times in my life that have been difficult and also at the same time other circumstances have have evolved including a warehouse fire uh, which got the offer immediately withdrawn um, which wasn't any you know I I had nothing to do with the warehouse fire it just happened (laughs) and, and the company decided to go in a different direction so yeah it is quite quite a big thing in practical terms, what does it mean? Well, it means that I've got someone else backing my book who really wants my book to succeed and is, you know, is, is part of the team of backing my book and wanting my book to succeed, which is awesome because it means that you, know, you don't feel quite so alone. And also joining you know, a group of writers who are all writing with the same stuff, joining John and, uh, and Drew is great because despite the fact that uh, Drew and I disagree over maths and sausage kidnapping... <laughs> Um, we get on really, really well. So, you know, any of the uh, the sort of bits and pieces to promote the uh, the works will will be something we can coordinate, which um, should be should be very exciting. So, yeah, it's it's a very very awesome thing in terms of you know the whole project in itself. I mean, I, I'm aware that my project is particularly complicated, and I do have quite a lot of things going on, which is why there's actually there's even more news this week, which is really good stuff because it's quite so complicated. You do feel on certain aspects of the project, you kind of feel a bit alone at times and actually having people come in and, and sort of offer you a, a slightly different perspective on it is is really helpful because it, it makes you feel supported makes you feel like you know uh, you can sort of lift yourself a bit more and, and and pedal a bit harder and get back to the you know the grindstone having a meeting with chris uh, a couple of weeks back really really helped because it was nice to have someone else who was enthusiastic about the ideas which was you know was lovely so it's all good stuff well congratulations again mate okay so what have we got in store this episode well for the development digest we've got two ddf topics that of injected events and sensors uh, community corner sees us meeting martin holder one of the concept artists we have the writer section and some questions from facebook and feedback uh, going over some of the stuff that we talked about in our previous episodes to start us off this week with the ddf we're going to go straight into injected events the goals of this ddf is to create large-scale events for all players to enjoy within the elite dangerous universe and to use player influences and system data from within the galaxy to feed into a meta game system and provide story and content for missions and other environmental encounters so john what exactly does that mean I don't actually think there's a, a lot in this that we haven't heard before because it's, it's kind of just a bit more flesh on the bones because they've talked about events in the game before. Who is going to be involved at different stages? You know, What can players interact with um, and what will be happening in the game world um, that will be influenced obviously by Frontier and developers? So by large-scale events, they mean important things like, for instance, you know, uh, a famine on a planet or uh, you know, a virus outbreak, maybe a star going supernova. So something that deviates from the, uh, the procedurally generated universe, in other words. And are they giving you any sort of indication as to how often these injected events are going to occur within the game? Or you know, are we expecting them to be exceptionally rare or do things like famine happen quite often? Well, it, that's kind of, I, I suppose that's an interesting question, something that they're going to have to sort of wrestle with, because, you know, if you do it too often, then 
do the injected events become you know almost like boring you know they're happening somewhere all at the, somewhere in the universe all the time and so nobody seems interested in them so for instance you know you could foresee a famine happening in a lot of places at the same time so i think that may be a bad example but like supernovas don't happen very often you know they need to kind of keep it maybe more maybe realism is 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 a good way to kind of judge that one you know you don't want to do it too often because people will just get bored of it whereas if it's quite rare you know, people will see that as a real opportunity. And I suppose that also the event has to create big ripples within the game to obviously draw people's attention. It just can't, it can't just simply be a case that there'll be something visual to see, like a star blowing up. There'll have to be effects. There'll have to be planets that are affected. The economy is affected. The political stage is affected, things like that. So how is that going to then sort of lead on to the sort of player interaction? I'm assuming, therefore, that if you have a famine, then it will have effect with things like the missions where you'll have to fly in more food to that particular system and make more money. Or, I don't know, maybe the, an injection of a civil war where you'll see certain factions you know, with their big cruisers sort of battling over star systems. You can maybe, as a bounty hunter or as a mercenary, get called into that to do missions. What, um, what other ways can you influence these injected events? Do you know? Well, I would have said that just taking your two examples that you've straight away got not just the fact that you can deliver food to a famine system you could also interdict a famine system so if you prevent people from delivering food to a famine system it's going to make the situation worse isn't it so these these are all methods by which you can essentially interact with the event and i think it, it it's, it's about game levers in terms of design and it's this as well in that frontier are thinking not just about players directly competing with each other but what they're actually doing is they are creating a toy for players to compete over or a device for players to compete over now when um when i've looked at design in other sort of game environments before now one of the best ways to get players to compete is to give them something to compete over rather than just simply compete at each other and this is where you get uh, a better sense of PvP and a better sense of you know, of realistic mechanics, really, because the whole thing will, you know, allow people to interact with the situation in a variety of different ways, and it won't just be linear as well. Because obviously, if you go head to head in a very basic uh, sort of ship to ship situation, then one ship wins, one ship escapes, or one ship dies. You know, it's quite a, a finite amount of possibilities. By the fact that you're bringing in an event that is multifaceted. It allows players to, to interact with it in a variety of different ways. Some of those ways will be supportive of other players, and some of those ways will be co- uh, conflicting. So it be really interesting to see how it pans out, and I think this fits in really nicely with you know, Michael's original intention of this evolving galaxy, which he talked about at Lavecom. We've given basic examples which came out of the previous kind of proposals about events that happen within the universe. But, you know, you can broaden it to things like political things within factions that happen, you know, within governments, but also things that happen by players as well. Although the players may not be able to, you know, directly trigger certain events, if there's enough momentum in a certain direction, that can kind of maybe direct the developers to to then go and trigger the event. So if the players are then discovering new parts of space which the developers have set aside, all of a sudden they know that there's going to be something happening there and they can hit the trigger and all of a sudden, you know, a major event will happen. Yeah, I mean, just looking down here at one of the sections, and it's quite interesting how they're actually layering these injected events. And just reading here, it says a well-populated planet suffers from an asteroid collision disaster, causing destruction over large parts of the surface, which will be a visible change to the planet for players. This in turn would have the potential to influence other injected events, such as 
a planet-wide famine or a severe pandemic. So it's not just one injected event. It's yeah, it's an injected event that can also have a knock-on to other things, which I think is just it just adds that extra level of depth and immersion. Chris, what do you think? Again, another one of those things that, that seems to me to be perhaps a little bit problematic maybe between single-player and multiplayer. If we're talking about the large-scale events, we're talking about the realism of how often certain things actually occur. And I remember Michael Brooks, I think, was asked a question sometime, I've even been laid gone, uh, about Supernova. And he was sort of saying, you know, because they're such rare events, these will be something that will happen maybe once. There'll be one Supernova in the period of time that Elite Dangerous covers. So it's kind of a, it's a little bit of a difficult thing when you're talking about multiplayer and single player, because if, if that's something that happens once in the multiplayer scheme of the game, then 95% of the players will miss it. Whereas if it's something that's going to happen once for each individual player's experience of the game, then actually it's something that's going to happen over and over again in a multiplayer setting. So it's just about, it's a tricky thing about how you balance that. And, uh, you know, and, and it'll be interesting to see how they tackle it. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly with, with EVE Online, there was a, enough of a delay for these sort of big events so that the, you know, the in-game media spoke about it enough so that, you know, even if you logged in like once a week, you would know that there was this big event coming, which you know you you had time to get across the galaxy and and be in a position to view it. So, yeah, it's interesting, as you say, is it's going to be something that's you know unique to every single person's playing game, or something that they're actually going to throw out for the whole multi universe. The important thing for me was it's not just going to be a case that you click on a planet and they're just going to flash up a status and say, oh, this, this planet is now in famine, or, you know, this planet was recently hit by a meteorite. There's going to be, you know, the planet will physically change, for instance. You know, if, if it has been hit by an asteroid, you'd expect to see a crater, and you'd expect to see dust in the air. If they can do stuff like that, I mean, that is fantastic. Um, well, there's also the fact that you've got the tie-in here, because knowing, you know, I'm, I'm very close to the end of the, the draft of my book, and knowing that my book resolves in a particular way, leaving all sorts of lots you know all sorts of little things for people to uh, to think about and we we as writers we've been kind of discussing that and that has been mentioned by by Michael as well with lots of little things left over and and you know things that um, readers can speculate on these are things that can be injected directly into the game so there's actually there's some lovely opportunity there to bring some connection between different things on retrolave um, a couple of weeks back people uh, gather together to do a review of TIE Fighter. In TIE Fighter, there is a mention of Admiral Thrawn, the, uh, the character from Timothy Zahn's novels, uh, the Star Wars Heir to the Empire trilogy that uh, occurs a little bit after you know, the original uh, Return of the Jedi and Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. But Thrawn was a, you know, a, a sort of a minor commander earlier on. And it's, really, uh, it's a lovely thing for, for players who play TIE Fighter or played TIE Fighter when it came out to get into a scene and they've written, read a book and they get into a scene and they go, that's the guy from the book. Oh, that's cool. And it all ties together. So, you know, I, I think you're going to see a few opportunities like that. Going on to the second topic of the DDF this week, and that of sensors in Elite Dangerous. I initially thought when I saw this appearing that it was going to be quite a dry topic. Um, but actually, there's some really juicy information here, which really sort of has an effect on how the game is going to be played. And slightly different to what I had in my head. I don't know if it's simply the fact that I played a lot of um, EVE Online, but uh, the dynamic from that is that once you jump into a system, you can basically scan the whole system down and it will tell you, you know, what planets are in that system, what asteroid belts are in that system, and everything becomes available for you to uh, to warp to. Now, that doesn't seem to be the case in, uh, in Elite Dangerous. It seems to be a fundamental difference. John, what do you reckon? 
Well, to start out, I mean, I, I think that they've had some real challenges to work against, you know, of taking what is, an, in effect, the entire galaxy and trying to model it within a game. With Frontier, they, they managed it and they did it beautifully. But I think the multiplayer aspect of the game, although that is the natural progression for it and it's the killer feature, I think it's presented them with some real real problems, real programming problems. And they probably knew it straight from the outset. But, you know, as um, Michael Brooks said at LaveCon, he said, you know, the major things that they're interested in is the multiplayer aspect. Going back to that... That has had some serious had a serious impact on how things like sensors work in the game because we're now talking instancing with with fellow players in the multiplayer uh, universe. John, just for those people that uh, that aren't so sort of clued up on you know, massively multiplayer online games and stuff, can you just describe what an instance actually is? Okay, good question. So an instance is something that multiple people can occupy occupy the same space and even the same time but be unaware of each other. Now, an easy example of this would be if you went and visited a cave um, and there was five of you and you were going to go and cut some orcs' heads off in the cave. Well, if there's a thousand people playing the game and it just so happens that half of them wanted to go to the cave, it would be very uncomfortable with 500 people in the cave. So as a programmer, what you would do is you would say, well, what size kind of group would people actually work together uh, and then that would be your like target size, and then you would make the make the game split those people up into groups so that they wouldn 't be bumping into five hundred people it would just be a group uh, and that way um, it 's manageable in terms of the multiplayer experience but it 's also manageable in a networking point of view that you don 't have to transfer information about five thousand you know five hundred players between everybody it 's just whoever is in game say I know nothing about these sort of things well um, my instance have an effect on you know anybody else 's instance that 's going on. In your instance, what happens in the small detail stays within you know those people. So if you got if there's five of you and you decide to jettison a ton of radioactives in Slough, for instance, you know then just the people in your instance will will see that canister. But I guess that what could happen is that event could be modelled on the larger scale in that Slough would become radioactive over time, um, and that could be something that you know, isn't related necessarily to small groups, but could be modelled on a larger basis over time. So that's the point, is the point is that important information that needs to be communicated on a rapid basis, such as position of ships, you know, what each person is doing in minute detail, needs to be communicated very quickly on a very rapid basis. So therefore, you need to minimise the amount of people that need that information. Whereas grand changes are usually very simple changes um, that you can communicate out to everybody, and they and they work slower. So of course the information can can you know be communicated more gradually in terms of what's there. Sorry, John, you said um, you said slough. Didn't you mean prism? <laughs> oh, we're starting. There's a new war. <laughs> I, I was sure you. I was sure you meant prism. I'm sure it was a sure it was a slip of the tongue, wasn't it? <laughs> it may have been. It may have been. Yeah. Just, just um, otherwise, you know, it might be that you're declaring a side. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't want you to <laughs> declare on the wrong side, John. You're absolutely <laughs> right. Okay, John. Well, that makes instances a little bit more clear in my head. But um, what sort of ranges are we talking about? Because obviously, when I was saying about Eve Online doing the whole system, I believe we're now talking about a distance of you know tens of kilometres. Is that right? If there's any Eve players out there, they'll understand the idea of um, is it time dilation. Mm. This whole thing where the more people enter into some kind of system or some kind of event where something's happening, all of a sudden time slows down. And that's 
their way of handling the massive amount of data that needs to be um, sent around to all the different players about stuff that's happening is they slow down time. Now, Frontier aren't really interested in doing that because, you know, that would require a kind of centralized server infrastructure, which they're not going to have. It's it's all peer-to-peer. So they're saying basically instead we're going we're gonna to have instances, but we're going to manage them in a way that has a, a maximum. Everybody's bandied around you know, the number 32, but I think that's kind of that's all dependent upon network infrastructure. And as obviously broadband capabilities around the UK improve and around the world improve, that may improve. The limit um, is there because, first of all, you've got this limit which is kind of imposed on us in terms of network communication where players are traveling at very large speeds throughout a system. Um, so if you've got in-system travel where you can travel faster than the speed of light, that's going to cause problems for the you know for your client for the server whatever whatever network communication going on so that's an issue that they need to look at but there's also another issue which hasn't been I, I haven't seen it mentioned anywhere on the forum yet by a developer but I'm taking it that when they split players up in a very busy system they can use what they call a quad tree which is a way of being able to split up players in a kind of spatial area and kind of say, right, these players are able to see each other because they're close together. And a quad tree, is a, it's, um, it's a collection that enables you to very quickly identify players that are close to each other when, obviously, you're asking a very rapid rate of, of a data set you know, who is next to who. Um, It's kind of geared towards that. And so, you know, a quad tree has been used for years and years, especially within MMOs, it's been used. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're not using something very similar to work out who can see who within a system. And so what they've been talking about within this... Um, in, in in terms of sensor uh, range, um, that kind of fits in with this idea of a quad tree. So in terms of instances and, and trying to meet up with other sort of yeah, friends and stuff in the lead, is it going to be a question of you know having to fly to a, a very specific part of the you know the system that you both agree on, like I don't know a certain asteroid belt or you know, a station or something like that, and only when you come close to that are you going to be able to see each other in the same instance? Potentially, yes, but I would imagine that if if somebody's on your friends list, that helps the developer, it helps the programmer to say, you know, right, we'll we'll base everything on a quad tree, for example, on who can meet who in what area, but also we have this ready-made list of people who are friends. And so it's very easy to add them in. I think one of the interesting things as well about this instancing is that and there's been a figure that's been banded around in the discussion of, in, of only being instanced with players that are in a kind of 10,000 square kilometer area around you. Now, obviously, in space terms, 10,000 square kilometers is not very much. And it kind of reinforces this thing that we've, we've already talked about, that even if you were to take a look at the solar system or, or any given solar system as a whole, the area around starports and orbital stations and that sort of thing are generally going to be very busy of traffic and in the kind of outer fringes of the system it's going to be much quieter and you're not going to come across many people and actually this this idea of this kind of 10,000 square kilometer bubble of 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 being of of kind of line of sight if you like almost reinforces that thing i know we've talked lots about people worrying about how much of a problem pvp is going to be for people coming into systems but i think if you had a system like in the old frontier where you could just look at a star map and see where everybody was in the system around you then that means that 
you know, a pirate or whatever could fly from one side of the system to the other to intercept you. Whereas I think this makes it much more like the old risk of traveling through kind of highwayman country. It's, you know, are you flying through a part of the system and you happen to come across where pirates are? If you do, then you're in a lot of danger. But there's also a good chance that you could fly in a line from the edge of the system to the core and not really bump into anybody. So I think it, I think this provides a little bit more of a clear picture about how some of that contact with strangers is going to work. I, I would just make one point there, Chris. I, I'd probably make a, for Drew Wager's uh, um, benefit, I would make a maths correction here in that um, you meant you meant cubed, kilo, uh, cubed kilometres, don't you? Not square kilometres? Uh, it's, it's, I haven't had as much sleep in the last couple of weeks as you might no, no, think. No, no, uh, don't worry. That, that's fine. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm not um, blaming you at all. It I just read allowed it very me... quickly. Yeah, we understand, we understand that, you know, it's quite easy to make a mistake and, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't <laughs> draw attention to it ourselves. No, I, I was just, it was allowing me to get a maths point right. So I was kind of, you know, I was kind of really holding on to that if, uh, if I could. Um, the, the serious point, the serious point I was going to make was that um, what this also does is something that we talked about in the communications uh, system when we're talking about uh, NPCs last um, last time when when I was I was talking about uh, with Kate about the my experience of the DDF and, and and actually talking about the comm system and this this idea of delay. One of the the points I was trying to put up was this idea of misinformation and this idea of that misinformation provides interesting game and lack of information provides interesting game. I think here again, if your sensors are like that, it provides interesting game. Similarly. If I go back to Elite, then you could only see on your, your sensor graph. I'm pretty sure that most of the stuff you could only see on your sensor graph was stuff you could actually see on your ship. So, you know, okay, somebody might be behind you, but when you turn around and, you know, and you, you level them out on your sensor graph, you could still see a dot of a, of a spaceship and then the spaceship would get larger and then you could, you know, sort of fight it or, or whatever. You know, it's not that much difference in terms of uh, the way that that's there. And it also, as a writer... Um, it, it helps a great deal because um, certainly when we're, we're looking at fiction, we're very interested in, um, you know, you know I, I'm writing a conclusion at the moment and I'm very interested in battles not being just a game of chess, battles having surprises in them, battles having moments where people hadn't seen people or something blindsiding someone or, or you know, anything else happening, you know, making use of the environment, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, this kind of gives an opportunity there. But I think what they've done with this proposal is really interesting, is they've made a game out of scanning. And I know previously we've talked about how one of the commodities in Elite Dangerous that you're going to be able to trade is system maps. And I'll be honest, I've never really understood up to this point quite where the game is in being an explorer, other than the actual process of flying and seeing interesting sites. But I never really understood how selling maps is a commodity because my understanding was from the the old frontier system where you kind of fly into a a solar area and you can kind of immediately bring up a map and you can kind of see everything within reason that's in that system with this with you actually having a scanning proposal that says your scanners work in a sort of you know 10,000 kilometer line in front of you you have to kind of fly around and fill in your map and it stops exploration being about this thing where you jump into a system look at it and say great I've got a map then you jump into another system and say 
great, I've got another map. This is actually about now having to fly around a solar system and actually physically find all the things that are in it in order to create a, a map. And this is where the whole thing about discovering pirate bases, discovering mineable asteroids, coming across kind of interesting sort of solar features. They've actually made a game out of completing maps. And I think that's a re- this is a really key piece of information now that really starts to flesh out really the explorer's game i know there's lots of other stuff in this about how you know you kind of gradually build up information about a ship contact but i think if you look at this in terms of how your star charts get filled in you know this is this is the game for the explorers i'm not sure how exactly relevant that is because the sen- all the sensor de- um, proposal is talking about like ship to ship contact rather than i don't know if this kind of 10 20 kilometer squared thing kilometer cube sorry alan is actually related to exploration but, but it's about it's about objects that you come across in the solar system and i can't i'd be i'd almost be disappointed <laughs> at this stage if this isn't the way the mapping actually works there's another, it's interesting, there's another game recently that's come out called Etrian Odyssey 4, which is a kind of RPG. And they have also introduced a thing where, where part of the game is actually to complete a map. Because I think there's a lot of games where when you go into a new area, you kind of automatically get the map, if you like, um, for that new zone. I'm thinking of something like, like Borderlands. When you go to a new zone, you can fire up the map and you can see everything on it with all of its landmarks. But I remember a time when, you know, it was quite common for games to only fill in your in-game map as you actually travelled around the area that you were exploring. Yeah, I think what's happened there is there's been this kind of like modern, there's been this feedback to developers where people find almost map filling in is, is grinding, it's quite tedious. And so I think a lot of people have taken that too literally um, and so now they just reveal everything as soon as you get there because they don't want to be accused of making players grind. Whereas, I hate to say it, but exploration, going by what you're talking about, you know, this idea that you have to really you know, f- feel around to understand everything, you know, that could be legitimately seen as a grind. I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. You know, a lot of people may enjoy it, but uh, then a lot of other people would say that it would be quite tedious. But this, but, there, but this would explain why there is a market for buying a map from somebody. Because if it is just a case of flying into a system and you can kind of see everything that's there, I don't understand why you'd buy a map. It's only worth buying something oh, sure, if it sure. takes time and effort to craft it. And you've got to sort of chime at this in that um, you've got to kind of connect to this the fact that the visual, you know, the difference of fog of war and some of those sort of elements that have been put in in, in previous, you know, games that have been produced is that the the, you know, the visual features when you jump into a system if there is a big planet you're going to see the big planet it's not going to be hidden you're going to see you know the star it's not going to be hidden the key thing here is you're going to have to your ship is going to have to discover the features as it were and i, I think those two things separated certainly for for me my my consideration of uh, of that experience is that as long as i'm not going into a system and not seeing the things that I should be able to see, if you see what I mean. If I, if I can see the things I should be able to see, and then I travel towards the space station that I perhaps know on my data chart is there, and then the space station appears on my scanner, and, oh, that confirms what was on my map. Similarly, offers the opportunity for forgery, too. Yeah. How cool would that be? Or out-of-date maps. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I love the idea of selling, selling fake maps. How cool would that be? Okay, well, before we, uh, before we wrap up this topic, just a few more things on the, yeah, some of the fundamentals of how targeting is actually going to work in the game. Um, when you're talking about sensors, the proposal is suggesting that there's two types of sensors, those that are passive, which are automatically on your ship and automatically will scan, but take a little bit of time to actually uh, you know, give you a positive result. Um, but they're, they're passive, so they're not going to be picked up by people that are actually being scanned by them. And then you've got the active ones, which you actively deploy and put on. So think about you know, putting out a ping, an active ping into the system. Those pings will be picked up by the ships that you're actually uh, pinging, uh, and they will know that they're being scanned. So interesting sort of uh, decisions to make regarding you know, how much time you have in a system and how, how much time you want to spend in the system as opposed to um, you know, how sort of stealthy you want to be. The only interesting thing that came on the forums with to do with this like active pinging of other people, it's a great mechanic. Um, you know, it, it makes you think of like the hunt for Red October and all this idea that you know you, you ping, you discover information, but you also give away your information. It gives you that kind of cat and mouse kind of thing, which I'm you know, I'm really looking forward to that. But there's a very interesting thing brought up in the forums, and it's kind of not maybe to do a bit more with the scanning, you know, of, of ships in particular, which we'll come to in a bit, but if someone's pinging you in a specific way so say somebody pings you uh, and finds you know your location and then very soon after that they they scan you for some reason is that a hostile act you know all of a sudden some ship on the other side of the system discovers you through a ping and and then the very next thing that happens is they do a cargo scan who are they why do they want to know what my cargo is are they a pirate and you know should this be is that classed as a hostile act I think I'd just nosy. I think I'd just be nosy and just want to know what people are carrying. <laughs> well, I guess it depends. It depends on what the etiquette is of the system. Yeah. I mean, if everybody just scans everybody's cargo, then obviously it's nothing untoward. But it's kind of like saying, you know, if somebody walked to you, if just because mm. if 10 people walked up to you in the street tomorrow, Chris, and said, I want to see in your underwear. Does the fact that 10 people <laughs> asked make it any better that it's just the one? That's that. Yeah. I, I don't know. But the thing I'm thinking it's of... It's a I pretty mean, normal a... day for you then, isn't it, Charles? Really? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I mean, the thing I'm thinking of, and I suppose it comes down to something that came up when I was writing Escape Velocity, was the idea that if you're a trader, if you've got someone coming into the system and they have wares to sell... If you've kind of got NPCs that are buying and selling rather than just a faceless stock market and there is competition with who wants to buy your stuff, then you're going to get this thing of traders eagerly wanting to know what ships are flying into the system carrying. Because if you're a trader and you want to hang around a little bit further out in the spaceport, you might get a scoop on somebody flying into the system. You scan, you see what they're carrying and you say, I'll offer you a great price for what you've got in your hold. Rather than waiting for them to dock and get into the whole trading process, you know, I, I, can, I can foresee a game whereby traders are scanning people to see if they've got particular things that you're looking to buy. So, for instance, on your news feed, if you've had a, a ping about a planet that needs a particular type of ore because they're manufacturing and they're short on steel or something like that, and you're in a system where you know people bring steel just to trade on a day-to-day basis, you might be scanning other players and thinking, I want to find the ones that are, that are carrying steel, and I want to buy from them before they can sell to someone else. 
Jarvis, have you ever been to a car boot sale? Because what you're That's describing sounds very much about the thing that I hate most about car boot sales. Well, you go exactly. in there with all your stuff and you set yeah. up, and before you, the public even comes to the door, you're being sort of hounded by all the other sort of professional sellers uh, looking and raking through your boot. <laughs> I'm not saying it's good, but is it interesting for the game? In terms of if you, if you, if you wanted to play as a trader, does something like that not give you more game than just logging into a computer and saying, what can I buy and sell? Join us again on Bargain Hunters, yes? <laughs> and I will say the other reason that I don't go to car boot sales is they notoriously happen way too early in the morning. And normally yeah, by is. the time I've got my shit together by about half eleven, people are packing the tables away. <laughs> okay, so when it comes to uh, to scanning and stuff, when you actually get a, uh, a scan that results in a verified contact, that then gives you uh, various other uh, mechanics that come into play. So once a, a ship becomes targeted... Uh, you have the option of uh, obviously deploying a missile lock on it. Uh, you could scan its subsystems if you want to target specific subsystems for an attack. Uh, you can scan its cargo, or if you've got any turrets, then obviously once you've uh, finished targeting a, a ship, then those uh, turrets will come into play in terms of their automatic combat. So in terms of the missile lock, I thought the missile lock idea was quite interesting. The idea, obviously, you've got to keep the ship into your field of view until you get a solid tone, that's you know, pretty standard. But then when it comes to actually firing your missile, depending on how expensive your missile is, depends on what type of missile you get. So you've got your normal dumb fires, I would imagine, which is sort of point it in the right direction and fire and forget. You've got the next level up, which is sort of a, a heat-seeking type of missile, but you need to maintain the ship in your sort of target reticule. So you have to have it in your field of view in the entire time that the missile leaves your ship and then impacts onto the you know, the enemy ship. And then the most expensive one where after you've got that lock, you can actually just fire it and genuinely forget about it. What do you guys think about that? I mean, is that the way that you want to see it working? With the missiles that you've obviously got to keep focused, they, that obviously favours the smaller fighters than anything else. You know, if you're on your anaconda and you've got a sidewinder coming at you, and you get a missile lock, it's very easy for him to get out of the way. Um, you can't manoeuvre your ship to keep him within the field of view, yeah, unless Frontier are going to you know, furnish us with more information about how the larger ships can have you know, multiple missile pylons with different fields of view or something. I, I don't know. You know. I mean, is it just a way of them for providing cheap missiles to new players you know they've just got to try that bit harder and as soon as you got a bit of cash you can get the more expensive missiles i don't know it's 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 a balance issue yeah it seems strange to me that in a universe where you've got the technology to have an auto cannon that can track a target because if you're if you're sorry if you're talking about needing to keep looking at a ship in order for the missile to guide to it what you're really talking about is laser painting which is this thing where you point, you, you know, the military use it, you point a laser at a target and the missile has enough sensor ability to be able to head for the laser point. And wherever you move the laser point, that's where the missile goes. So you're talking about that kind of technology. But if you've also got auto cannons, which as we understand it on things like the big anacondas, these are turrets which can automatically track a target, would you not just have one of those to keep painting the laser on the target anyway? I think the the way that they're probably going to uh, frame it is that the cheap missiles will do what your targeting computer tells them to do. And if your targeting computer only has this kind of narrow field of vision, which is whatever way the ship is pointing, and it's communicating with a missile, you know, it's a pretty dumb missile, and it'll just do whatever. The expensive missiles have the onboard computer. 
you know, onboard computers, I'm sure, even in the future, ex- are expensive. Now, you don't mind putting an onboard computer on a turret because it stays on your ship and it's not going to go and blow up. But missiles blow up. But is that what it's saying? Because to me, it looks like you've got a kind of missile that will follow it as long as your targeting computer is tracking that target. And then you've got a second class of missile that will track a target even if you switch and start following somebody else. That, that was my understanding of it. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. But what I mean is that with a laser painting, they had it even in the Falklands War, I believe, but the soldier literally has to keep the, the laser bang on the target. We're not saying that. With a field of view, you know, it's just got to be within 45 degrees. Mm. So you can move about. So it enables you to chase another fighter. It doesn't have to be dead in front of you as long as it doesn't, you know, leave that kind of arc. But, as I said, that's not a problem for fighters who are chasing someone down, and it kind of supports dogfighting, but it doesn't support this idea of you're in your anaconda, and you know if you've only got this one forward-facing computer system, it's not really going to help you against a bunch of fighters that are swarming around you. Okay, well, moving on to the subsystem targeting, this works very similar in the fact that you have to keep the ship that you're targeting in your field of vision until it has been completely uh, scanned down. The ship that you're scanning will know, unless you've got some particularly stealthy modules for scanning, it will know it is being scanned, its subsystems are being scanned, so it will be aware of what you're up to. If at any point you break off uh, or the ship gets out of your field of vision, then you have to start scanning all over again. That makes perfect sense to me. And then in cargo scanning works pretty much exactly the same way. Mm. I mean, to be honest, they're pretty, you know, they're pretty staple mechanics for, for you know, what we've become accustomed to in, uh, in space sim. So nothing too radical on those ones. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, the only thing that this might have added confusion to people is if somebody is across the other side of the system, it's very easy to keep them within your field of view to do a full full scan on. But as was kind of explained by the developers further in the thread, it's, you know, because this the range of the scanners is reduced, maybe it's not going to be as easy as you think. Yeah, I mean, I, I got the impression that at, um, that at this sort of 10,000 kilometres range, what you'll get is there is a blob, there is something there. Could be a ship, could be a rock, who knows. And as you get closer, maybe when you halve that distance, you can tell what kind of ship it is. And then if you halve that distance again, you can actually then start to scan what its offensive or defensive capabilities are. And maybe you have to get within, like, spitting distance of it to actually be able to scan its cargo hold. I don't know, I'm guessing. It kind of gives you this interesting opportunity that if you're within somebody's scanning range, because it is quite short, and all of a sudden you get notified that somebody is scanning you, you do have a potential of just escaping the scan. Yeah. If you just read the proposal simply, you'd think I'm in the same system as them. And so therefore, what can I do to, to evade the scan? Nothing apart from hyper jump out. But now, now it's been clarified and there's this smaller kind of scanning bubble. Mm. You know, it is actually going to be possible for you to get away from a scan, which again, may create gameplay. And this is where the heat stealth thing comes in as well, because my understanding of it and again, I may well have read it wrong, but my understanding is that where people are using passive sensors, the amount of the distance that you have to be to a target in order to be able to read them with passive sensors is based largely on their heat output. So if you're outputting less heat, 
people have to get even closer to you to be able to tell who you are and what you're carrying. Okay, well, that's going to do it for the DDF for this week. We're going to move straight on to the community corner and say hello to Martin Holden, concept artist at Frontier Developments. Now, Chris, I'm glad you're back, actually, because we were going to do this in the emergency broadcast. But um, I remember sitting there looking at the, the photograph of his desk and thinking, what we need is a Japanese manga or a Japanese... Uh, I was going to say cosplay, but maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, someone who's interested in Japanese culture to be able to explain exactly what the stuff is that he's got on his desk. There's all sorts of Japanese on there. Okay, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's got a lot of cool stuff. I mean, things there that I can immediately recognise. Um, he's got the fighter ship from Cowboy Bebop uh, stuck to the right-hand side of his monitor. Uh, he's got what appears to be a nice rendition of Geiger's alien design stuck to the top of his monitor. Possibly con- art there for um, the old... Dreamcast game Shenmue, maybe, mm. I'm seeing that. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's an Akira, the, the uh, character from Akira at the bottom, sort of quite well-known shot. And there's possibly a figure of Totoro on his right-hand monitor at the top. Uh, it's either Totoro or uh, Snorlax from Pokemon. From this distance, I couldn't tell you which. But I think the girl from Spirited Away is definitely just by his right cheekbone. But, I mean, I have to say, not just looking at his picture, but one of the things that really, st- um, really stood out for me, kind of reading his his whole interview uh, is actually how much his interests and my interests kind of bisect. So yeah, that, that was the main thing I took away from this. Is this not the first, I was going to say, is this not the first um, sort of (laughs) employee uh, that we've come across in these meet the, uh, meet the team interviews that actually sort of had a similar sort of connection to, elite and frontier like the rest of us he you know he played frontier when he was sort of you know 10 to you know 10 11 12 sort of age uh and just basically fell in love with the game and and wanted to do what the rest of us really wanted to do but maybe didn't have the skills and that's and go and work on the next game yeah maybe i mean maybe it's you know maybe he's in a slightly older demographic maybe than some of the other people that have been interviewed i'm not sure i think he's one of the youngest actually mate um, really my brain yeah. has died so i have no idea he was uh, he was <laughs> he was 10 when he was playing frontier when he was playing first uh, when he was playing frontier Oh, he's younger than us then, because I yeah. was playing that when I was like uh, 14. Mm. Yeah, so I thought I was around about 12, 13 when I was playing that, so a little bit younger than the rest of us in the podcast, a lot younger than Alan. So Part of what you've got here is you've got his discussion about the original wireframe models and how he's then you know sort of translated and developed ships and concept ideas from the wireframe models, which I, don't, I find really interesting because particularly you know, the fact that they have gone back to those original images and, and sort of generated the images that they're producing for the for the ships that they're using next is, is fantastic. And, you know, much as we already know that, because we're all fans, from the point of view of somebody just dropping in right now to the forum, having seen the Capital Ship video or something like that, that's a really lovely thing to find out that, you know, if they did play Elite back in the day, if they did play Frontier back in the day, that you've got someone who's doing concept artwork who enjoyed that game and is also making use of those retro you know, sort of images from those previous games to, to create some continuity. And I think that's actually one of the big USPs of this game, the, you know, the continuity that it does have from its previous games in that you know, it is a nod to you know, the, the versions that they've produced. Particularly if you look at other games that are you know, coming out, if you look at Star Citizen, there are some, you know, there are some nods to previous games produced by Chris Roberts, but Star Citizen is not Wing Commander. You know, the nice thing with this is that Elite Dangerous is another Elite or, you know, or another Frontier. You know, it still has the many of the same components, and it's lovely to see that 
in a process through the design work. Yeah, and you don't want someone coming to this game who, you know, only has a kind of very recent view of how games are made and designed and is kind of presented with the source material of this ancient original game and looks at it from the point of view of how can we beat this into shape to match a current mould of how things are now done. You want someone to approach it from the point of view of this is the source material, how can we make it fresh and stay true to what was originally there? And just adding to that, um, I, I'm not trying to say that 3D artists you know, don't have any skill in creating new concepts or anything like that, but a concept artist will see something and then because they have the ability of freeform design, you know, they're not limited to you know, like a, a CAD package or any concept of like polygon art or anything like that. They're able to go and create concepts upon a previous vision uh, and maybe add to it, which then that can be given to a 3D artist. And it's that kind of intermediary which can keep the original aesthetic, but at the same time give it the new look. Okay, so a massive thank you to, to Martin and to Ashley for putting that interview together. Let's go on to the writers' forum. Alan, what have you got for us? Well, it's got quite interesting this week. We've started to look at a little bit more to do with tying things together. So the writers are looking at elements of their their stories that they can offer up to other writers to kind of fit in and connect, which is really Really interesting. So it'd be lovely for for readers to you know sort of follow through. Uh, we were doing that process over the last couple of weeks as well. So it's it's sort of built on. TJ, who I believe John is is interviewing fairly soon, or at least the, you'll hear the the interview come out fairly soon, um, has finished his draft, which is great. So that's three people in the clubhouse, as it were. And amazingly, um, we have now heard from Commander Boz. Yes, indeed. Do you want to tell us what he said from his well, uh, Caribbean islands? I'm afraid I only got the, 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 the sort of short version that was posted onto the normal forums, um, which was that he's back and he's writing and he's hoping to get some stuff down. Um, I believe he sent a more detailed newsletter to some of his backers, so they appear to be a lot happier in terms of what's there, which is, is great. So it's an encouraging and positive sign. Most people are at the stage of you know being completed or, or nearly completed, though. So it's it, I, I don't know how far along he is because obviously we haven't seen anything, but he really does need to either get writing or also get into the, the writer's forum and, and start soaking some things up because he's certainly not been in there yet. Um, so if... Anyone is talking to him, I would strongly recommend he gets into the writers' forum. Just to say, though, I mean, presumably, you know, perhaps he's a slight disadvantage with some of the other writers in the sense that while you've been through the process of getting your plot elements and ideas approved, you've had the option of if there's something you wanted to include in your book that maybe wasn't perhaps part of the original village. Uh, original vision from frontier developments for certain things you've had the opportunity to argue your case and include ideas and technologies in the canon that you want to include in your book presumably with commander boz and anybody else who's coming to it at a late stage they're kind of going to be presented with a bit of a bible of this is how things work you know you now have to kind of conform to this is there less movement now on arguing Um, concepts not noticeably i i I think the the engaged or the engaging method that Frontier have, have gone through is that they have organically developed the um, the concept material as things have gone on. This has been one of the things that I've found a little difficult, and I, I like things to be locked down. So actually, you know, some things have 
you know, have been posted in the, the writers forum at an early stage and then a new revision has come out that has changed them. And that's actually, you know, you, you've then had to run to catch up. It's not been too bad, but, you know, occasionally you, you sort of find things that aren't then in the, pre, you know, the, the subsequent document. And so you're sort of running to catch up with that. So it's not noticeably locked down. But I do think that part of that process is we've had six months or so of being able to ask questions. And of course, where we're, you know, we're suggesting things or asking questions about particular things, it's meant that the game designers are perhaps thinking about those things. And so they have the opportunity to put something together that would, that would respond to that. And so that might shape their design. Uh, not, not so much that writers are, you know, are kind of nudging and, you know, and, and having the things the way they want them, but more the case that the writers are thinking of something, so the game designer is thinking of it. So, yeah, he's had none of that. What about the, the flip side of that? Because obviously, you know, going back to your conversation between you and Kate, uh, where Kate's saying that it, it's actually quite, you know, it's quite tempting now that all this new information is coming out to actually sort of go back and start rewriting or putting things into bits that you've already written. You because... Know, does Commander Boz have an advantage in the fact that all this information is there and he can just sort of take it from the start, as it were? I would guess so, but at the same time, I wouldn't swap places. It's hard to write a book, and we are now at the end of September, and if you're going through an approvals process and a quality process, because good writers, the best writers, will still go through three or four or five or six different drafts and will really be nuancing and nuancing and nuancing. If you're, and I heard somebody say that he was planning on getting a full draft or a starting draft together by the new year, that's not a lot of time. You know, between then and the game launch, that's a tight window. So it's going to be, going to be you know, a challenge. So, um, you know, I mean, I don't know what length of book he's looking at. So it could be that he's looking at something a little shorter. So that, that, that could be fine. But that is going to be a challenge. So I wouldn't swap positions with anybody in, in, in terms of where um, things are at the moment. But um, I, I do think that there are significant inherent challenges in where he is uh, right now. Okay, and what about some of the other projects? I mean, how active are the other writers on the on the writers forum at the moment? Well, yeah, I can I can talk a bit more about that. I mean, we are starting to, and and some of the Tales guys have been fantastic this weekend, and they've started to share a little bit of excerpting from some of their work. And and actually, we've been doing that a little bit with the mythology thread, but we also started to share a few sections and quotes, and that's been really really helpful because in one sense, it's helpful in that you can see. Uh, things that you can perhaps chime in with or, or offer ideas to. In another sense, it is writers being very courageous and putting themselves up there and saying, yeah, you know, okay, anybody got any comments? What do you think about this? How, how good is this? How bad is this? You know, I mean, I've, I've been teaching creative writing for, for nine years. As a professional, I crit work all the time. So I'm critting work all through the year. I like the opportunity to crit work. And it's very nice when, you know, when people are prepared to put things up and you know, and you can kind of make some suggestions and, and give them some, you know, some tips and advice. And of course, at the end of the day, it's their decision as to whether they use them or not. Anyone that is a writer has to have an inherent confidence in the fact that they can write a piece of, of fiction. So at the end of the day, if I, you know, if I offer you ten suggestions and you say, yeah, actually, I'm only going to use two of them, great. You know, that's that's fine. You know, you you use what you can use. But it's lovely in that by people putting stuff up and people talking about it you create even more of a community between the writers and you give more of an opportunity to, you know, to sort of see what each other are doing, which I think is really good. From that then, I mean, one of the other things that we talked about early on in the, uh, this podcast was, are there going to be any sort of shared values or shared artifacts within the, um, you know, within the, the writers 
uh, within the writer's forums. So there's things like um, we were talking about swear words early on. You know, mm-hmm. Now that you guys are all sharing uh, these excerpts and stuff, is there anything that you've looked at and said, oh, there's a few people who are using that word or that theme that uh, might work quite well in my book or, or vice versa? Yeah, that's basically what the whole mythology thread is about. And, you know, and I think we'll, we'll probably start to expand that with colloquialisms and other things as well. But yeah, you know, I mean, quite a lot of my research area is about that kind of shared mythology and how you find ways to allow other writers in to, you know, to tell their story and connect it and, you know, and sort of fit little nods and things together. I think that kind of stuff's amazing. And I know that readers will like to be able to read one person's book and then read another person's book and find connections between those books. You know, that's that's lovely. And it is nice to be in a position in the process to be able to do those kind of things. Um, I'm afraid, Foz, I'm not going to tell you what any of them are, though. <laughs> That's fine. As we know, I don't like spoilers anyway, so I'm more than happy to wait. Um, okay, well, that's going to do it for the writer's section. Then let's go on to the, the feedback and Facebook questions part of the podcast. Now, the first thing I'm going to go on to is uh, is Jarvis. You weren't around for the emergency broadcast. And obviously, you know, the, uh, the arrival of your firstborn is kind of a reasonable excuse, I suppose, for not <laughs> answering the uh, answering the call. But, um, you know, you've had a chance to look at the video now. Give, give us, you know, a couple of minutes. What did you think of it? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the video. Um, I know, you know, you guys have said that a lot of people like the beam lasers. I just, I really enjoyed the beam lasers. Uh, I was a massive fan of um, Babylon 5 and I, I like the look of the space battles in Babylon 5 and it was one of the things that I really liked about the the, the RTS um, homeworld was that they had those kind of those ion beams uh, and I, I just I just that whole element of it I just thought was great and I also liked you know the thing with the laser tracking along the hull and leaving the burning again it just made me think you know Star Trek Wrath of Khan uh, there's that lovely effect shot where a laser beam just cuts across the hull of the Enterprise from sort of front to back. And it just made me think of that. And it was, you know, and it, it is exciting to see the game in motion. And it's, and I almost want to say, it's going to sound a little bit harsh, I was reassured by how good it looked. And I'm not talking about in terms of eye candy, but I'm just talking about the kind of the look and feel of the battles, the pace of the battles, just the way the whole thing played out. Because I've become... A little bit concerned over the months that we've been talking about this game and hearing all the different voices chipping in and lots of different thoughts about full Newtonian physics versus, you know, a really kind of unrealistic flight model. And and there's been a part of me that has started to really fear that when this game appears, it's going to be something that I just can't love. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table and say, if Elite Dangerous came out and it shares Frontier's combat model even though i really loved frontier when i was a teenager i probably wouldn't commit any time to playing elite dangerous if the space combat was going to be like that so for me there was a kind of sigh of relief almost when i saw this video and i thought this is the concept they've got for how space battles are going to work you know it looks it looks fun it doesn't look completely unrealistic but at the same time it doesn't seem to be this kind of sort of jousting or or targeting people from a distance that you sometimes get with modern flight simulators. I looked at that and I thought, even though I know that as a trailer, perhaps, obviously they they have the ability to cut between different cameras and there are certain things that you aren't going to be able to replicate in gameplay, but I still think that the overall vibe of that encounter 
gave me a kind of renewed confidence in the vision that this game is going for with its space combat. There was an interesting sort of trend among various sort of console military flight sims a few years ago. And they realized that if you if you realistically model a military flight sim, you don't generally come within three or four miles of your target. You pick them up on a radar at that distance, you fire off a missile, and the chances of you ever even seeing the person you're fighting is is very slim. And they started introducing this thing where there was one game that would do things like when you attacked an enemy, it would do like cinematic cameras to kind of show the dogfight rather than you all just seeing it from point of view. And then there was another game where they actually twisted the flight model so that instead of flying that way, it encouraged you to be within sort of 50 or 60 feet of your opponent, even though that's totally physically unrealistic. So I think my concern was that, certainly with Frontier, quite often you've killed your enemy before you even really know what kind of ship they're flying. You just don't see them up close. Whereas with this... The, the the actual speed of travel in system was slowed right down. You know, you're skimming over the surface of large ships. You're actually following the tail of your enemy. And you've got a good look at them when you're chasing them and fighting them. And that's really what I want to see. I completely agree with you. But I think this has been a bit of a problem. It's something of contention on the forums that there's a lot of people that value realism. And I suppose I was one of them up to a certain point. But I think it's you've got to accept that realism can't be everything. And as you said, you gave the example of modern aircraft. There is no dogfighting anymore. And so in the future, you would, you, you would kind of extend that and assume that dogfighting is complete. The concept is completely ridiculous. You know, you're going to have massive weapons that can destroy anything from any distance. But that's not fun. Yeah. And so it's one of those things in the game where you know, you need to sacrifice whatever people's conception of the future is going to be on the altar of reality. Uh, Sorry, on the altar of fun. And I will say, you know, realism will drive gamers away from this game in droves if they implement it. And I would even go so far as to say that, that the realism of military flight simulators is what has all but destroyed the flight simulator market. The only flight simulator games now that sell really are World War One and World War Two flight combat games because that is the last era where the historical realism of the combat matches any kind of exciting gameplay. And it's funny you mention that because uh, both Alan and I played Evasive Action, which was a DOS game, and that was a combat simulator. And so I always found that the Second World War simulator was the best because you had the you still had the dogfighting you still had the cannons there was no missiles it was very visceral it was you know it was it was all skill based but even with the world war 3 and then the future world they weren't too far removed from that there was they were still very skill based and that's why they worked and i i think as soon as you get away from that it kind of supports the argument of you know don't have drones you know you should manually have to mine with a laser yeah. Because if you start removing it from people, then all of a sudden it's more of a management game than a, than a, a participation. Exactly. And again, it goes back to my point about this, you know, it, my hope that this scanning proposal is about that you actually have to map a system manually. Because that's much more interesting than just sitting there while your computer fills in a map for you. Uh, Chris, you mentioned that uh, you felt a little bit left out on the pirate debate, seeing as you weren't able to be on the show. What were you... Uh... 
Yeah, well, it was the first podcast I missed. And I kind of, I had this thing when I was listening to the podcast where there were moments I wanted to kind of chip in and say, yeah, but what about this? Oh, yeah, but what about that? And obviously I wasn't on air, so I couldn't do it. Um, and I wanted a kind of right to reply thing. So, so here I am. Now, I think the thing that interested me about the pirate discussion, there were two elements. The two problems seemed to be, how do you score good and effective piracy? And the second thing is, what's all this business about declaring piracy up front, which seems a little bit laughable. But listening to the podcast kind of set my, my, my mind going. The thought that occurred to me is that a good, they've already said that a good score as a pirate is in getting goods. So the, the simple mechanism that occurred to me is if you store information about how much cargo you have damaged alongside how much cargo you have managed to scoop and sell, you've actually got an idea of a ratio of your effectiveness as a pirate. A bad pirate, as has previously been said, attacks a ship and damages the cargo they're trying to take. So if you have a ratio where the cargo that you sell intact is significantly greater than the cargo you destroy in trying to acquire it, that's your piracy score. That, 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 that's how I kind of see it. And I just you know, thought I'd put that out there as a kind of suggestion of this is how it could work. Um, because actually, in terms of piracy however much damage you do to your opponent's ship is largely irrelevant to your pirate score. Your pirate score should really be purely about swag and booty. And the other thing that occurred to me off the back of that was this business about declaring piracy. If your aim as a pirate is to get stuff for free and then sell it on for profit, and your aim as a victim of a pirate is to get away without being killed or losing too much... If you see someone coming towards you that's basically said your money or your life, you might be tempted as a pilot to say, I'm going to dump this piece of cargo and run. If this piece of cargo is more valuable to them than what they perceive as the value in attacking me and getting the rest of my cargo and perhaps risking a fight, they might not chase me. I might be able to run away and the pirates will be like, oh, they've dumped a bit of cargo. We'll pick up that instead. So it actually, this element of declaring piracy could actually provide some gain. It gives you the opportunity to try and buy off the pirates before they actually attack you. I think everybody agrees with with that as a potential. But I guess the game needs to help the, the pirate in seeing the cargo. My argument would be, is is the human player going to be purely rational in that when you dump that ton or a couple of tons or whatever it is that you're going to jettison in, in a small space of time because you're going to be trying to get away at the same time, is that going to be drawn to their attention in a way that it can be brought to the, the front of their thought processes and it will register and then say, you know what, two tons of robots is worth stopping for instead of chasing this guy. Yeah. You know, or is this human, you know, need to just go and kill you, which is what everyone is worried about. But but then that comes down to bad piracy. This this is what I'm saying. The difference between a high scoring pirate and a low scoring pirate would be one who scares their opponent into dumping cargo. Because if your score as a pirate is based on spoiled cargo versus unspoiled cargo, two units of dumped robots versus nothing that you've damaged... That's that's an absolute best result for you as a pirate. The thing is, you're still appealing to the rational mind, okay? <laughs> what I'm saying is that if players don't behave in the way that you're expecting and that they basically say, I'm just going to chase this guy down, I just want to immobilise him and I want him to dump all of his cargo, 
because people are going to always look for the absolute payout. People who play um, fruit machines aren't looking for the five, seven pound payouts, which are quite often offered. They're looking for the jackpot every time. They always turn down the smaller thing. Mm. And that's my point. And, and that happens in you know, MMOs all the time. People are always looking for the ultimate, which is usually the kill. But there's still, I mean, you're, you're talking about, you're to, effectively, in, in pirate terms, you're talking about greed. And you're saying, well, this person's dumped this. If they've dumped that to get rid of me, then what they've got on board must be really valuable. So I'm going to go after them. But then your skill has to change. If you're a pirate who is a good enough combat specialist that you can disable that ship without destroying the rest of their cargo, then, yeah, you're going to go for the full haul. You're not going to be taken in by a little peace offering. But if you're a pirate and maybe you're thinking, my equipment's not that good, my combat ability's not that good, I'm not convinced I can disable this ship without completely wrecking their cargo, you might just, you know, take the free stuff that's given. You've just given two examples of an irrational and a rational thinker. The rational thinker would be thinking about the quality of their ship, the quality of their offense, the payoff in both situations. That all takes time. And when it comes to gaming, no one thinks that way. But I'm not, I'm not sure what point we're making. Are we saying that the game shouldn't reward skillful and rational play? Hey, I'm just playing <laughs> devil's advocate. I'm no, 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 no. no, no. That's just, what I'm saying is that players aren't rational at all. You know, I, I hate to say it, maybe you would see more rational play in Iron Man, I guess. Maybe, you know, you would hope. Maybe. But I think that when when death is cheap, I think players are going to act as if they play in a lot of games, you know, whether it be, you know, Call of Duty or whatever. I mean, you know, I mean, this is, it's, it's a massive psychological discussion we're, we're doing here. And I'm sure Alan's now asleep because I haven't heard from him for at least half an hour, maybe an hour even. Maybe the way to, to do it is have both the career of a pirate and then also have the career of a psychopath. And therefore, if you just want to go and blow people out of the sky, then your psychopath rating goes through the roof. Oh, dear. Okay, well, I think I'm going to draw that to a close. And in fact, we're going to draw the uh, draw this episode to a close as well. So uh, thank you very much to, to Chris, especially Chris, given that, uh, obviously, your new family commitments. Thank you very much for coming on the show. John and Alan, thank you very much indeed, guys. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can. You can contact us at info at laveradio.com. On Twitter, at laveradio. You can search for us on Facebook. If you'd like to give us a call, you can do on Skype. Just send us a message at lave.radio. If you'd like to leave us some reviews on iTunes, they seem to have dried up, and they are the, the things that we call the warm and fuzzies. So if you'd like to review the show on iTunes, it's very much appreciated. If you'd like to take part in Retro Lave, we muster at 8.30 on a Monday night. That's going to do it for this show. See you next time. Can I can I just um, interject for all of the um, uh, the the men who don't have children here? This is really boring if you go into these. Oh details. no 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 no! I love Chris. Okay, congratulations, Chris. It's great that you've got a daughter. I think that's wonderful. But um, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, Alan. Just because uh, you don't have any kids, unfortunately, most of our listeners are middle-aged with family. So these are the sort of questions that actually they would be interested in, regardless of what you think. Stats. 
<laughs> John, John, do we have do we have that? I'm just surprised all of a sudden you want evidence for things, mate. That's all. Um... <laughs> do you want to tell us a little bit about the book, what it's called, and what he's focusing on? Not really, because I don't want to spoil the interview. <laughs> the title of the book? Um, Out of Darkness ah. is the title of this book. Um, I already made the joke that, uh, you know, luckily... Um, Star Wars changed the name of their movie, otherwise it would have, it would have been an absolute nightmare. But um, yeah, no, it's it's it's. I'm not going to give it away. Listen to the interview because it's 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 an interesting book because it's quite different to some of the other books that are out there. So for con- continuity purposes, was that Star Trek or Star Wars you meant? Sorry, what did I you say? Said Star Wars. Oh, sorry, no. Oh, fuck. Well, the joke's gone now. It's gone away. <laughs> You've just lost all your geek points, John. That's it. It's going to take I'd... you take you thirty odd years to get them back. It's like, it's it doesn't like Rufus matter. Hound, who was on that BBC Doctor Who thing. Oh, like, that was painful. Doctor Who geek, and he got everything wrong. <laughs> oh, he's brilliant. on Mastermind, is he? No, no, no. They no, did, no, no, when no, they no. did the Doctor Who announcement about who the new Doctor was. They got Rufus Hound on as a pundit because he's he's a kind of self confessed Doctor Who geek. And almost every fact he came out with about Doctor Who, he got wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> It was. It was painful to watch. It was painful. It was horrible, horrible television. Uh, everybody finished with injections of mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Cool. Hey, would this be a cool time for you to go and give your cat drugs? No, because Karen's here. Oh, ah. Okay. Would this be a cool time to give Karen drugs? Say. <laughs> <laughs> you never say the right thing, do you? <laughs> Ever. That, that, is, that is why I am the host of this show. <laughs> That's why you're in a hotel room. You know, you never not, say the right I'm thing. I'm always in a hotel kicked out you're, one night a you're week. Telling us, you're telling us that, you know, uh, it, I think it's a random day every week. I think it's just, you know, that, that Mel has had enough of you and uh, you know, end up in a hotel room. It wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. Mm. I personally think it's it's part of some kind of agreement between mediators that he's got to get out of the house one night a week <laughs> so, she can, so she can just chill out. Yeah. Absolutely. GTA 5 is, is on my list. Oh, you should have put it down as your, on your wish list, on your on your baby uh, your list of baby presents. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Everyone would be convinced by that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Eden would like a copy of GTA 5. Yes, Eden, Eden desperately needs 